morning, um, Matthew chapter 22, and, and we're going to finish out Matthew 22, and then uh, the Lord would allow us this morning, we'll be working all the way through chapter 23, and uh, moving along. And if you have a bulletin this morning, on the back side of your bulletin is, is an outline of some suggested structure to, to our, our sermon this morning, and some truths there that might be a blessing to you as you walk away and digest this passage today in your private time with the Lord. Matthew chapter 22, and we'll begin in verse 41 in Matthew 22, and then we'll keep reading all the way through Matthew 23. So please follow along as I read in the Word of God. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you, have, you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut down the kingdom of heaven and people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he come, becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides! who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? If you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his, by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who, swear, who dwells in it. 
And whoever swells by, swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law of justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Philip, then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again. Until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus says the Word of God. May God bless the reading of his Word among his people. Would you pray with me as we begin? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Word of the Lord. This morning I pray, Father, that the Word would open up unto us a glorious picture of Jesus our Lord. Let us see Jesus in the way in which David saw him. Let us see Jesus in the way that leads us to call blessing upon his name. Oh, Father, I pray that you would strip us from hypocrisy. Let's lay aside masks and robes, layers of pride. Humble us before you this morning, Lord. And I pray that if there's someone here today who is pretending to know you, but on the inside is full of lawlessness and hypocrisy. 
Oh, Father, have mercy. And I pray that today they would call upon you and say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, Father, help us who live righteously, but often feign righteousness by living rightly by the strength of our flesh. Help us to disdain that which the flesh does and yearn only for what the Spirit can do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. False religions always have a problem with the identity of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. False religions always have a problem with who Jesus is. They always have. The identity of Christ, his identity is the line that distinguishes Christian faith. The Jews of Christ's time had come to believe in a non-deity form of a Messiah. You've probably began to piece that together in some of your understanding of the Jewish theology of that time. But let me say that again. The Jews had come to believe that the Messiah would be a deliverer only in human form, not God himself. They believed him to be the great patriot, the great one who would capsize the Roman Empire and free Israel to finally be there on Mount Zion, courageous and big and receiving all the glory of the nations and the nations would come and bow down to Israel. They had come to believe in a superhero, but only human. It was outside of the Jewish theology that the Messiah would be a God-man. They only believed him to be a man. Not only that were they opposed to the thought of a suffering Savior, even though the prophets were careful to describe the Messiah as one who would come to suffer and to die, and even to rise again, but they were opposed to a divine Messiah, a divine deliverer. And Christ tells them, the, the, the Pharisees here, that they were right in believing that the Messiah would be a man, but he needed to correct them further to understand that the Messiah would be God himself and their failure to believe in him would be their own judgment. So Christ asks this unusual question, and as we explain this, maybe it'll become more clear to you why he's asking this question. But notice in verse number 41, Jesus asks the question of the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Now, the definite article, the, indicates to us that he's not talking about his name, and remember, Jesus' name is not Christ. That's his title. He is the anointed one. He is the deliverer. He is the Messiah. Christ, Christus, is the other word for anointed one or Messiah. He's asking them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They knew that the Messiah would be from David's line. They had a long-standing belief in this. They were great historians. They knew the genealogy. By the way, speaking of genealogy... Remember, Matthew has shown you the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1 from David. So Jesus, Jesus here attributes to them, you know that the Messiah is going to come from David. You know that much. And therefore, as would be reasoned out, it would be reasonable to believe that he would be a human. 
he would be David's son. David wasn't divine. He would have a son. And someday that son would be the Messiah. He would be the second David. He would be the one to bring back the kingdom, to consolidate things and really bring Israel into its glory days. He would be a great warrior like David. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And imagine what the Messiah is going to do to this wicked empire of Rome. So he's going to be a human son of David. They knew the prophecies. He was the son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives the promise of an eternal kingdom to David. And he says this to David. When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thine own body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you're going to have a son. He's going to be king, and he's going to have an eternal kingdom. That's God's covenant with David. In Psalm 98, this is reiterated, and in Psalm 89.3, God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And in verse 20 of Psalm 89, I have found David my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hands shall be established, mine arm shall also strengthen him. In Psalm 89, 24, God continues to say, My faithfulness, my mercy shall be with him, in my name shall his horn be exalted. So Israel is looking forward to this God-anointed son of David. He's going to have the special power and position of God to deliver Israel from its bondage, from all of its troubles. And God is going to rest a particular power upon him so that he will deliver mercy unto God's people. This is Israel's hope. Oh, we long for this great warrior to bring us out underneath the oppression of all the wicked men that suppress us. This is their passion. We've heard others cry to Jesus that he's the son of David. You remember the two blind men. Oh, son of David, have mercy upon us. And Jesus goes over and heals two blind men. We also know that Matthew chapter, that was in Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 12 on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And this is Wednesday in our Bibles in Matthew 22 and 23, okay? This is Wednesday of the Passion Week. On Monday in the triumphal entry, what have people been shouting to Jesus as he walks into the gates of Jerusalem? Blessed be the name of the Lord. They have been saying, this is the son of David. They've been quoting The psalm that cries out, Psalm 110, that this is the Messiah. That's what people have been quoting as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So we have heard many times in the voice of people that there is, this is the Son of David. Okay? This is the Son of David. That Jesus is the Son of David. And when Jesus cleanses the temple, what are the children shouting out that the Pharisees are really upset about? They're saying, blessed be the son of David, blessed be the Lord. And the Pharisees say, Jesus, tell those children to quiet down. They don't know what they're saying. You're not, you're not the Messiah. But it wasn't just going to be any son of David. There needed to be something special about the son of David, because there had been many sons of David. As you look at Matthew chapter 1, there's, there's I think, 44 sons of David listed. It's not just going to be any son of David. It has to be a a special, 
a, a particular son of David who's going to deliver them. There has to be something peculiar about this son of David. And so Jesus is pointing this out. It's not just going to be any son of David, because hasn't David had a lot of sons by now? So it isn't just going to be any son of David. It's not going to be Solomon. Okay? It's not going to be just any son of David. So, so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, what is going to be special about this son of David? Who do you say that he is? And they say, well, he's the son of David. So then Jesus brings into the conversation a quotation from David himself. Who is going to tell us something special about who the son is going to be. And look at your Bibles in verse 44. Jesus says, this son of David is going to be special because the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. Notice in verse number 43, how is it that David said in the spirit, he calls him Lord. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus says that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he said this thing. Right? And, and the Jews believed that. The Jews believed that David had spoken as from the Lord. They believed that the Psalms was the very word of God. Just like you and I believe the Bible is inspired by God. So David is being inspired and he's saying something. We recognize that. But he's recognizing something that under the inspiration that he calls the Messiah Lord. And he uses the term for for the Messiah that he uses for God. The Lord said to my Lord. He said unto my Lord. The Lord is the word Yahweh that you and I know in the Old Testament. The Lord is the word Yahweh. That's the, the big name for God, the covenant name for the God of Israel. I know I might be starting to lose some of you, but stick, stick with me on this. We're building a case for this, and it's going to be really great. So, so the Lord, Yahweh, covenant-keeping God, says to my Lord, and this word Lord is Adonai. Right? It is Lord as we think of Lord, like a commander, a ruler. The Lord says to my Lord. That tells you something about God, doesn't it? It does tell you at least that there's two persons of the Trinity, at least. Right? It tells you there's two persons of the Godhead. There's Yahweh and there's someone else. And this will be Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make for you an everlasting kingdom in Psalm 110.1. And so here David is saying that God is going to say to one of David's sons, you are the eternal king. You have an eternal essence. You're not just a human, but you're God. So David's son is going to be God. He's going to be Adonai. And Jesus says to these Pharisees, do you understand what David is saying here under the inspiration of God that David is saying that the Messiah, his own son, isn't only going to be a son, he's going to be God. He's going to have an everlastingness to him. He's going to be Adonai. And so God is called Yahweh and God is called Adonai. <clears throat> and Jesus used Psalm 110.1 for several reasons. And that is because in Psalm 110 was, if you could think of it, is the, the motto for Israel. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's using this because this is the most familiar passage. And by the way, Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in your entire New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Paul quotes it, Peter quotes it, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it. So if you're looking at Psalm 110.1 and you think it doesn't look very familiar, well, just read the New Testament. You're going to find it a lot of times. It's the most quoted passage. What's God trying to tell us? Well, I think one of the things God's trying to tell us, at least through Psalm 110.1 in our New Testament, is this unbelievable, yet must be believed, that God is this God-man sent to deliver you and I from our sins and that it was absolutely necessary that he would, by dual nature, rescue you and I from our sins, identify with us in our sinfulness, yet have the holiness and power to be that second Adam, this last Adam. So David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that his son is going to be Adonai. David is the author of Psalm 110. And the Messiah won't just be a man, but he will be deity himself. So if David says that the Messiah is going to be God, not a man, there's no other higher power than when the Messiah comes as a God-man, he comes as king and you must serve him. There's no other way to live. Jesus is king and he's the better king than David was. And because he's perfect and eternal king, he's blessed by God with an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus is presenting himself here to the Pharisees, I'm king. And there's only one way to deal with that. And that is to follow me. If you reject me as your king, there's nowhere for you to go. Because I'm king over all. I'm king over all time because my kingdom is everlasting and my kingdom is ever-present. That is, that there is nowhere to go. You can't stand here and say, I'm not going to be part of your kingdom because there's nowhere else to go. His kingdom is everywhere and it's everlasting. And so if you reject him, you are banished from the kingdom. And the reason why you're banished from the kingdom is because the reason why you rejected him as king and you rejected him as kingdom is because you sit in the seat of Moses as a lawgiver. And he's saying this to the Pharisees. The reason why you're not recognizing me as king is because you're sitting, you're sitting in the seat of Moses as a lawgiver and you ma- you're making your own laws. You're replacing laws and you're breaking laws and you're executing some laws unjustly. Because you reject the king... And because you're a lawbreaker, I have seven woes for you. Seven woes for you. The first point of our passage this morning is that Christ is the Lord. That is, he is the Adonai. He is the Lord. You know, all of us enter into this world as legalists. Just sit in a daycare for just, go sit in the nursery right now, maybe. Don't, because I think we have enough in there already, but... But uh, sit, sit in the nursery, watch children play. Are they going to hold others to the rules of fairness? Who had that toy first, right? We're born into this world as legalists. And we grow to become Pharisees. 
if we don't understand the nature of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. It's very possible that as you hear this message this morning that you sit here as a Pharisee. And that would be that you are not a Christian. That you have all the appearance of religion and righteousness and outward goodness. But inwardly, there's never been a change. There's really only two types of people here today, and that is a Pharisee or a Christian. But we instinctively have a problem with grace. From the very time in which we scream our first breath, we have a problem with grace. We are born resisting the idea of grace. We become Pharisees when we live in such a way that we look to cover over our sins rather than receive grace in repenting of them. Let me say that again. We become Pharisees when we cover over our sins rather than receiving the grace of repenting of our sins. And we fail to be amazed by grace. It's very likely that you're sitting here today and and your heart has grown so cool and accustomed to God's grace that you're not amazed by grace anymore. Often, I confess, I too feel the same way. Sometimes we'll even take the singing of the song, Amazing Grace, to re-evoke in me the gratitude for grace, amazing grace. And we sing that song and all of a sudden our heartbeat comes back, doesn't it? A realization, a refreshing of how amazing this grace is. Charles Spurgeon said that we are all born legalists. We become Pharisees when we, in fear of grace, cover our sin. And how do we cover our sin? When we fear grace, how do we cover our sin? What do we use instead of grace to take care of our sin? There's several things I want to propose to you. Number one, we cover our sin with knowledge. More knowledge, especially maybe even more knowledge of the Bible. More knowledge of religious practices and customs. More knowledge of, of what's right and wrong. We, we study the Bible more. We study God more. and we, we cover our sin with knowledge. We cover our sin with religion. But as we just become more religious, we become more practicing of our rituals, of our traditions, more faithful to our religion, more devoted to our religion. We become Pharisees when in fear of grace we cover our sin with knowledge, with, with, with religion, or even with morality. We cover our sin with morality, that is living rightly. That almost sounds hopeful. Even as I say it, it almost, without the gospel anchoring my heart in this moment to tell you that you can cover sin by being good sounds believable. But it's not true. In our insecurities, we put layer upon layer upon our wicked hearts instead of humbling ourselves before the Lord for his cleansing work of forgiveness. You see, The reason why we counsel our hearts, why we assuage our troubled hearts, our guilty hearts, with knowledge is because we're insecure. The reason why 
we use our religion to calm our guilty heart is because we're insecure. We want something further. The reason why we try to do more good to appease our guilty conscience is because we're totally insecure. And we will add layer upon layer of knowledge and religion and morality. We'll just put layer of layer upon phylacteries and tassels and the Pharisees' robes to cover up what's deep inside. If we just bury it, perhaps it won't be there anymore. If we cover it with more convincing robes, if we convince even the most pious around us, genuinely loving Christians around us, that we're okay, then maybe we can squash out the voice inside that says we're not. And so we put layer upon layer, like Pharisees did, phylacteries and tassels and robes and law and morality and knowledge and rituals. And friends, this is what your neighbors are doing. They're putting on masks, pun intended. They're putting on robe after robe and they're so weighed down because they fear grace. And you know what it is to fear grace because you fear it too. You're born fearing grace. And no one needs Jesus more than someone like that. And no one needs Jesus more than a Pharisee. And no one needs Jesus more than a Pharisee. Remember Matthew and Chapter 4, Matthew gives the account of his own conversion when he followed Jesus. And he went to his home after he met Christ and handed over his life to Christ and entering into the freedom of forgiveness. And he went to his home and he made a big feast and he invited all of the scoundrels that he hung around. And the Pharisees said, Who is this rabbi that, that sits among sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus said, I did not come into this world to heal the well. For the well are in need of no physician. But I came into this world to heal the sick. And listen, Pharisees are the sickest among us. And if you have neighbors who are religious but don't know Jesus Christ, perhaps some of your greatest pity should be for them. Robe upon robe, layer upon layer, reveal a deep insecurity of what to do with sin. No one needs Jesus more than a Pharisee, and some might think that only sinners need a Savior. There's perhaps no greater sinner than a more legalistic Pharisee. And Jesus came to the Pharisees. Do you see what's taking place here? Jesus is among the sickest of the sick in Israel. Here in his last days, he's not with the tax collectors and the sinners. I say that with quotation marks. He's with the Pharisees. And he is preaching grace to them. 
Jesus came to them without any pride, without any crown, through Bethlehem, through a cross. Jesus came to save the Pharisees. He longed to gather them in. So why did David say, Lord, Lord? Because he recognized he needed the Lord. You know, sometimes we don't recognize we need the Lord. We think we need the law. Fundamentally, we have a problem with God being our Savior. We want a human Savior. And we say, who would be our human Savior? Ourselves. We might be honest enough to look around the world and say there's nobody good enough that I really have any respect for because everybody has their skeletons in the closet. But I can trust myself. We want a human savior. We want our own laws. We want to sit on the seat of Moses and enforce those laws upon others. Oh, how deeply we need a savior to rescue us from our own saving. Christ is Lord, number two. Christ is the Lord, not the law. Here's what it looks like to not see Christ as Lord. To begin with, to not see Christ as Lord, we will lay heavy burdens and not help to carry those burdens. We'll lay heavy expectations upon other people in our lives. We will enjoy their respect. We'll enjoy their titles. We'll enjoy their acceptance. We'll long for their affirmation. We'll we'll cringe. We'll recoil when we don't receive the level of affirmation we desire to have from them. We love the applause more than we do giving glory to God. And this pride leads us into seven woes. And here's seven woes of which Christ declared unto the Pharisees. Number one. He said unto them, Woe unto them because they lock the door of the kingdom. They make it hard for anyone to know the Christ. When people are watching our lives, can they see Christ? I don't just mean people, I mean even lost people. Is it hard for people to see Christ? Is it hard for them to know what the gospel is? Secondly, we lead others in confusion instead of the clarity of the gospel. It's not real clear to us what the gospel is, and so it doesn't really clearly come out of us. Living in the gospel of grace, living in a way in which we're constantly repentant, that is that we are not only admittedly sinners, but turning away from our sin, and seeking after a holy life, willing to call sin, sin, and fess up to it, but not merely remaining there, but pursuing and pressing towards Christ's likeness. Thirdly, we live with law, but not with love, making others twice as proud as ourselves. That is, that we place our expectations on others and we disciple others according to our own standards. Coins our own preferences. We want others to conform to the way in which we think they ought to live. And and maybe when they do, then we're pleased. But what have we produced? Someone twice as proud as ourselves. The Pharisees and their converts were children of hell primarily because they rejected God's provision of their salvation. 
Jesus said to the Pharisees, you'll go out into all the lands and you'll make proselytes. What's he saying? You'll go and you'll make a Gentile, a Jewish convert. Okay? But what have they been converted to? They already were not God's people, right? In a sense, he's sort of speaking a little bit figuratively. They're already Gentiles, right? They're already outside the covenant. And you've brought them in and you've given them the false assumption that if they obey the law, they'll be a child of God like a Jew. But now they're twice damned because they're a Gentile who still has never been truly converted because they're still living under the law and wickedness. Where's grace? Number four, we lie and we do not live in the truth and there's all these oaths and swearings by the temple and the altar and the essence of this is Christ is saying, when are you just going to live in truth? The reason why you can't even speak in truth, why you have to make oaths and swearing all the time and swear to something higher than something else is because the fact is that deep within you, you're, you're not actually living in truth. You're not living according to what is true. It's right in front of you, but you're denying it. You're always putting a twist on truth so that it's, it's just a little harder. You're making it hard. Do you know that it, 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 is, it is harder to live in lies than truth? Number five, we leave the important to the unimportant. We lessen the value of faithfulness, justice, and mercy. It says you tithe all these things. You're all the way down to the minutia of how you're going to follow the law, cumin and spices. You're going to tithe according to these things, according to the temple, but all the way down to the very tax of the law, you're checking off all the boxes. But when people follow you around, how faithful are you to glorify God? People to follow you around, where is genuine love-inspired mercy? People follow you around, sure, you obey all the rules, obey all the laws, but, but how about justice? Number six, we look good on the outside, but not on the inside. They're whitewashed sepulchers. You know that Jewish law had said that if you were to come into contact with the dead, uh, dead body, uh, whether it be an animal or a person, uh, you would be unclean. What week is this right here? This week in the Bible here is the Passover week. Of all weeks, of all times of the year, you definitely wanted to be clean for the Passover. And so yearly, in Jerusalem, in the cemeteries, they would have workers who would, who would clean off the stones in the ground and the stones that were monuments and they would whitewash them, clean them. This was not to honor the dead. You and I might go to a cemetery today and of a loved one and just make sure it's cleaned up and maybe place some flowers there. This is not what's taking place here. The whitewashed sepulchers was meant, especially during this week, maybe even as Jesus is speaking, you could see over the next hill people whitewashing the tombstones. And that was so that you wouldn't touch it the week of Passover. You dare not touch that because you would be defiled and you wouldn't be able to observe the Passover. So it was sort of brightening it up as a warning. Don't touch this. The tombs were whitewashed. 
And this was done so that the people wouldn't defile themselves, but the Pharisees were doing the opposite. They were doing the opposite. How were they doing the opposite? In their scrupulous regulations, they appeared to be clean, like a newly washed tombstone. But actually, but actually, even though they appeared to be clean, they were defiling people. They appeared to be clean, but they were inwardly full of wickedness. They sought to make disciples of themselves, but instead they corrupted others. While they should have been clean, they were entirely defiling. Number seven, we live better than our fathers, and the word better means quotation marks, and they were saying we would never kill a prophet. What are they going to do in 24 hours? They're going to put Jesus on trial. And in 36 hours, he's going to be hanging on a cross. The prophet of prophets. We would never. And Jesus says, oh yes, you will. But Jesus is longing. And number three, Christ is longing. Christ is longing. And to bring it into our remembrance, please look down with me at, at verses number 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does Jerusalem mean? Do you remember what Jerusalem means? It's not city of David, that's Bethlehem. What does Jerusalem mean? The place of Shalom. What does Shalom mean? Peace. O place of peace. O city of peace. You kill the prophets. You stone them of all places for there to be peace. There's a cross. place where you would find peace. Jerusalem. The city of peace has killed the prophets. And Jesus says Jerusalem twice showing his agony and intensity. Doubling this is, is a matter of, of speaking in such a way with, with great passion. There's no fuller passion that Jesus would have said than saying this. You are killing the prophets, he says. Look, a city that kills the prophets. Not that killed, but that kills. You won't hear the truth. When God brings the truth, remember a prophet is a representative of God before man. He speaks what God gives to him faithfully. You you are killing the prophets. And this is present tense and and it's going to be happening in just hours here you're killing the prophet a place that should have never killed prophets of all places you're killing the prophets but I wanted this to be a place like a shelter for you and in likeness to Psalm 36 Jesus said but I I would like to have gathered you in like a a hen would gather her brood and under her wings 
And he says, there will be a time coming when you will not see me again. But there will be a time when you will see me. And when you see me, you will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And where is that? That is Psalm 118.26. And it's what they had already been saying at the beginning of the week. And many had already said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these people will chant this. When will they say this? I'd like to give to you three times to consider. One, I believe, and I think this is the one I like the best, but you can decide, is in 50 days, about 50 days, when on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God will come down and He'll review, He will reveal to 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem that He has been blessed who has come in the name of the Lord. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And after that, many, many thousand, by the way. But another um, idea is also that um, this will be a time when um, Jesus will return at the end of what we call maybe the eschaton. Many would believe after the tribulation and Jesus comes to culminate the tribulation on the Mount Olives. And he puts his foot on the Mount Olives. And the Mount splits and God delivers through Jesus on a white horse the battle of Armageddon. Israel, who is saved at that time, many in Israel, and who see unto him and say, Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, for he has come to finally deliver us. It could be there too. But do you know that a true Christian, a true Christian can never really be a Pharisee or a hypocrite, even though we can act like them. A true Christian can't be a Pharisee. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you, you can't be a Pharisee. You may act like one. You, may, you can't really be a hypocrite. You may act like one. We can know that if, if Christ confronted um, such hypocrisy and pharisaicalism, that, by the way, we can too. We can confront one another in love. We can confront others in love and reveal to them who Christ is. Show them there's no need for the robes and the phylacteries and the tassels and the morality and the knowledge and the layers. We also can confront it in our own lives. Because of Christ, we can confront Pharisaicalism in our own lives. And we can lay aside these robes and know that the knowledge and the morality and, and the religion is nothing like Christ. And secondly, we can act like a Pharisee for a period of time. Although a true Christian is one who has not placed his faith in the law, that's why he can never truly be a Pharisee. A true Christian cannot truly be a Pharisee, but he's placed his faith in the Lord. 
There can be seasons in our lives where we are especially judgmental and full of pride. And like Peter, when he went into Galatia and preached the law to the churches and held them to the law in Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14, Paul reveals it. And for a period of time, we can live this way. And God's desire is that we identify this and recognize this, is, this has been in our blood for a while, this legalism. But Christ says unto us, I would like to gather you in. Will you humble yourself? Will you lay aside your, your fleshly standards? Will you stop trying to cover your sin with everything else but my saving blood? And humble yourself and come to me. And when you do, I'll gather you in like a hen. I'll bring you close to myself. Who do you live for? The Pharisees were not living for the Lord, even though they looked like it. Do you live for a divine audience? Do you live for God? Or do you live for a human one? Do you live for a human audience? This will tell you the nature of your love, whether you love or whether you law, whether you love or whether you live by the law, who you're living for. It will reveal when you ask the question of yourself throughout the day, who am I living for? What am I doing this for? What is this moment about? Is it about me? Or is it about God? We who love titles and applause and affirmation. We who live just shy of the truth. We who make sure all of our ducks are in a row so that we appear good. And we read more so we can have more knowledge. We who hold heavy loads of expectations on other people, meanwhile, ourselves don't do one single thing to lift the heavy load off of their shoulders. Woe to us. Woe unto us. Who we are living for reveals either our pride or our humility. There's hope for the hypocrite. There's hope for the hypocrite. It's Jesus Christ. Not more robes, not more laws, not more rituals, not more religion, not more knowledge. At the heart of all of this, at the heart of all of this pharisaicalism, at the heart of all of our problems is just pride. And Jesus says, we who should know peace are so full of pride. Let's pray.